Book 5, Chapter 2 of The Heavenly Twins. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Vijeta Sharma. The Heavenly Twins by Sarah Grant. Book 5, Chapter 2. If the first and second days at home were failures, so far as Mr. Kilroy's comfort was concerned, the third was as bad, if not worse. It was a continual case of please don't. From morning till night, and Angelica herself was touched, at last, by the kindly nature which could repeat the remonstrance so often and so patiently. But all the same, she did not forbear. All that day, however, Mr. Kilroy made every allowance for her. Angelica was thoughtless, very thoughtless, but it was only natural that she should be so, considering her youth. On the next day, however, it did occur to him that she was far too exacting, for she would not let him leave her for a moment if she could help it. And on the next, he was sufficiently depressed to acknowledge that Angelica was trying, and if he did not actually sigh for solitude, he felt, at all events, that it would cost him no effort to resign himself to it if she should again prove refractory and refuse to go back with him. And Angelica knew that he had arrived at this state just as well as if he had told her, but still she was far from content. She wanted him to go and she wanted him to stay. She did not know what she wanted. She teased him with as much zeal as at first, but the amusement had ceased to distract her in the least degree. It had become quite a business now, and she only kept it up because she could think of nothing else to do. She was conscious of some change in herself, conscious of a racking spirit of discontent which tormented her, and of the fact that, in spite of her superabundant vitality, she had lost all zest for anything. Outwardly, and also as a matter of habit, when she was with anybody who might have noticed the change, she maintained the dignity of demeanour which she had begun to cultivate in society upon her marriage, but inwardly she raged, raged at herself, at everybody, at everything. And this mood again was varied by two others, one of unnatural quiescence, the other of feverish restlessness. In the one, she would sit for hours at a time, doing nothing, not even pretending to occupy herself, in the other, she would wander aimlessly up and down, would walk about the room and look at the pictures without seeing them, or go upstairs for nothing and come down again without perceiving the folly of it all. And she was forever thinking. Diavolo was at Sandhurst. If only he had been at Ilverthrope. She might have talked to him. She tried the effect of a letter full of allusions which should have aroused his curiosity if not a sympathetic interest, but he made no remark about these in his reply, and only wrote about himself and his pranks, which seemed intolerably childish and stupid to Angelica in her present mood, and about his objection to early rising and regular hours, all of which she knew, so that the repetition only irritated her. She considered Mr. Kilroy obtuse, and thought bitterly, that anyone with a scrape of intelligent interest in her must have noticed that she had something on her mind and won her confidence. 
This reflection occurred to her in the drawing room one night after dinner and immediately afterward she caught him looking at her with a grave intensity which should have puzzled her if it did not strike her as significant of some deeper feeling than that to which the carnal admiration for her person which she expected and despised would have given rise but she was too self-absorbed to be more observant than she gave him the credit of being the result of mr kilroy's observation was an effort to take her out of herself he began by asking her to play to him not very graciously she got out a violin remarking that she was sorry if it was not her best one where is your best one he asked it is not at home she answered i left it with israfil my fair-haired friend you know she spoke slowly holding the end of the violin and tightening the strings as she did so the effort causing her to compress her lips so that the words were uttered disjointedly and as she finished speaking she raised the instrument to her shoulder and her eyes to mr kilroy's face into which she gazed intently as she drew her bow across the strings testing them as to whether they were in tune or not and seeming rather to listen than to look as she did so mr kilroy still quietly observing her noticed that her equanimity had been suddenly restored but whether it was the mellow tunes of her violin or some happy thought that had released the tension he could not tell it was as much relief however to him to see her brighten as it was to her to feel when she answered him that a great weight had been lifted from her mind and she would now be able to talk it out this trouble that oppressed her unrestrainedly as was natural to her when mr kilroy accepted the terms upon which she proposed to marry him namely that he should let her do as she liked she had voluntarily promised to tell him everything she did and she had kept her word as was her wont telling him the exact truth as on this occasion but mixing it up with so many romances that he never knew which was which he was in town when she first met the tenor but when he returned she told him all that had happened and continued the story from time to time as the various episodes occurred making it extremely interesting and also almost picturesque mr kilroy knew the tenor by reputation of course and was much entertained by what he believed to be the romance which angelica was weaving about his interesting personality he suggested that she should write it just as she told it i have not seen anything like it anywhere he said nothing half so lifelike oh but then you see this is all true she gravely insisted oh of course he answered smiling and now when she answered that she had left her best violin with the tenor it reminded him by the by yes he said how does the story progress i was thinking about it in the train on my way home but i forgot to ask you other things have put it out of my head since i arrived and out of mine too said angelica thoughtfully at least i forgot to tell you which is extraordinary by the way for matters are now so complicated between us that i can think of nothing else it will be quite a relief to discuss the subject with you 
She drew up a little chair and sat down opposite to him with her violin across her knee and began immediately and with great earnestness looking up at him as she spoke. She described all that had happened on that last sad occasion minutely. The road down the river, the moon rise, the music, the accident, the rescue, the discovery and its effect upon the tenor and all with her accustomed picturesqueness speaking in the first person singular and with such force and fluency that mr kilroy was completely carried away and declared as on previous occasions that she set the whole thing before him so vividly he found it impossible not to believe every word of it and what are you going to do now he asked with his indulgent smile when she had told him all that there was to tell at present you cannot end it there you know it would be such a lame conclusion that was just what i thought she answered and i wanted to ask you as a man of the world what would you advise me to do well he began then he rose and held out his hand to help her from her little chair will you come out and sit on the terrace he said and allow me to smoke the night is warm angelica nodded and preceded him through one of the open windows well mr kilroy resumed when he had lit his cigar and settled himself in a cane chair comfortably with angelica in another opposite what a lovely night it is after the rain yesterday this by way of parenthesis rather close though he observed and then he returned to the subject i suppose you mean that you do not want it to be all over between you between the tenor and the boy she corrected the whole charm of the acquaintance don't you see for me consisted in that footing i don't know how to express it but perhaps you can grasp what i mean mr kilroy reflected i'm afraid he said at last that footing cannot be resumed the influences of sex once the difference is recognized are involuntary but if he has no objection i do not see why you should not be friends and intimate friends too and with that sort of man you might make some advance especially as you are entirely in the wrong i am not saying you know that this would be the proper thing to do as a rule but here are exceptional circumstances and here is an exceptional man now that is significant said angelica jeering society is so demoralized that if a man is caught conducting himself with decency and honor on all occasions when a woman is in question you involuntarily exclaim that he is an exceptional man mr kilroy smoked on in silence for some time with his eyes fixed on the quiet stars his attitude expressed nothing but extreme quiescence yet angelica felt reproved don't snub me daddy she exclaimed at last i came to you in my difficulty and you do not seem to care mr kilroy looked at his cigar and flicked the ash from the end of it tell me how to get out of this horrid dilemma angelica pursued i shall never know a moment's peace until we have resumed our acquaintance on a different footing and i have been able to make him some reparation ah reparation said mr kilroy dubiously do you think it is impossible angelica demanded 
Not impossible, perhaps, but very difficult, he answered. Really, Angelica, he broke off laughingly. <laughs> I quite forget, every now and again, that we are romantic. You must write the story for me. Let me see where we were, Mr. Gilroy replied, humoring her good-naturedly. It is a pity you cannot unmarry yourself. You see, being married complicates matters to a much greater extent than if you had been single. A girl might, under certain circumstances, be forgiven for an escapade of the kind, but when a married woman does such a thing, it is very different. Still, if you can get well out of it, of course, the difficulty will make the denouement all the more interesting. But I don't see how I am to get well out of it, unless you will go to him yourself and tell him you know the whole story and do whatever you tact and goodness suggest you set the matter right. She bent forward with her arms folded on her lap, looking up at him eagerly as she spoke and beating a devil's tattoo with her slender feet on the ground impatiently the while. No, he answered deliberately. That would not be natural. You see, either you must be objectionable or your husband must. And upon the whole, I think, you had better sacrifice the husband. Otherwise, you lose your reader's sympathy. Make you objectionable, Daddy, Angelica exclaimed. The thing is not to be done. I could never have asked you to marry me if you had been objectionable. And I don't see why I should be so either, entirely, you know. If I had been quite horrid, I should not have appreciated you, and the tenor, and Uncle Don, and Dr. Galbraith. Oh dear, why is it, when good men are so scarce, that I should know so many, and yet be tormented with the further knowledge that you are all exceptional, and crime and misery continue because it is so? What is the use of knowing when one can do nothing? Again Mr. Kilroy looked up at the quiet stars, but Angelica gave him no time to reflect. I don't see why I should be severely consistent, she said. Let me be a mixture, not a foul mixture, but one of those which eventually result in something agreeable after going through a period of fermentation, during which they throw up an unpleasant scum that has to be removed. That would do, Mr. Kilroy responded gravely. But just now, Angelica resumed, it seems as if I should be obliged to let matters take their course and do nothing, which is intolerable. Oh, but you must do something, Mr. Kilroy decided, and the first thing will be to go to him. Go to him, she ejaculated. Well, yes, he rejoined. Naturally, you will feel it. Now that you are no longer the boy made courageous by his unsuspicious confidence, I mean the tenors, it is quite proper for you to be shy and ashamed of yourself. As a woman, of course, you are not wanting in modesty. But there is no help for it. He would never come to you, so you must go to him. I quite think that you owe him any reparation you can make. And, knowing the sort of man he is, you have made his character well known in the place, have you not? Angelica nodded. Well, then... A visit from a lady of your rank will create no scandal, nor even cause any surprise, I should think, if you go quite openly, for you are known to be a musician and might therefore reasonably be supposed to have business with one of the profession. I wish, by the by, 
You had made him an ugly man, with kind eyes, you know. It would have been more original, I think. But you will find out who he is, of course. No, I hardly think so, Angelica answered. But you would advise me to go to him. This, by way of bringing him back to the subject. Yes, with a vigorous attempt to draw his cigar to life again, it having gone all but out. I should advise you to go to him boldly by day, of course, and just make him forgive you, insist on it. You will find he cannot resist you. Then you will start afresh on a new footing, as you wish, and the whole thing will end happily. You forget, though, he did forgive me. There are various kinds of forgiveness, Mr. Kilroy replied. There is the forgiveness that washes its hands of the culprit and refuses to be further troubled on his behalf, the least estimable form of forgiveness, and there is that which proves itself sincere by the effort which is afterward made to help the penitent. That is the kind of forgiveness you should try to secure. But somehow it still seems unfinished, Angelica grumbled. If you had been single now, Mr. Kilroy suggested, you would, in the natural course of events, have married the tenor. Oh, no, Angelica vigorously interposed. I should never have wanted to marry him. Can't I make you understand? The side of my nature which I turned to him as the boy is the only one he has touched, and I could never care for him in any other relation. Well, I don't know, Mr. Kilroy observed thoughtfully. It may be so, of course, but it is unusual. And so am I unusual, Angelica answered quickly. But there will be plenty more like me by and by. Now don't look, heaven forbid, at me in that way. That was not in the least what I intended to express, he answered with his kindly smile indulgent. And I am inclined to think that your own idea of loving him without being in love with him is the best. It is so much less commonplace. But what do you think? Speaking as if, struck by a bright idea. What do you think of putting him under a great obligation which will bind him to you in gratitude and secure his friendship? You might, with great courage and devotion and all that sort of thing, you know, find out all about him, prove him to be a prince or something, the heir to great estates and hereditary privileges, with congenial duties attached. The idea is not exactly new, but your treatment of it would be sure to be original. Angelica interrupted him by a decisive shake of her head. But about going to him, she demanded, you do not think, speaking as a man of the world yourself, and remembering that he knows the world, too, although he's such a saint, you do not think such a proceeding on my part will lower me still further in his estimation? Well, no, Mr. Kilroy replied. I feel quite sure it will have just the opposite effect. As a man of the world, he will know what it has cost a young lady like you to humble herself to that extent. As a saint, he will appreciate the act, looking at it in the light of a penance, which, in point of fact, it would be. And as a human being, he will be touched by your confidence in him and the value you set upon his esteem. So that, altogether, I am convinced it is the proper thing to do. Angelica made no reply, but got up languidly 
after a moment's thought, carefully ruffled his hair with both hands as she passed, called him, Dear old daddy, and retired. Mr. Kilroy did not like to have his hair ruffled in that way, particularly as he was apt to forget and appear in public with it all standing up on end, but he bore the infliction as it was intended for a caress. Angelica's caresses always took some such form. She assured him he would like them in time, and he sincerely hoped he might, but the time had not yet arrived. The following evening, they were again in the drawing-room together. Mr. Kilroy was reading the papers. Angelica was sitting with her hands before her, doing nothing, not even listening, though she affected to do so when he read aloud such news as he thought would interest her. The week was nearly over, and nothing more had been said about her return to town. She was just wondering, now, if Mr. Kilroy had found the week a long one. She had given him more than enough of her company, and made him feel, at least so she hoped, slipping back to the mood in which he had found her upon his arrival, made him feel how pleasant a thing it is to dwell alone in your own house with no one to trouble you, and she quite expected to find, when it came to the point, that he would cheerfully take no for an answer. Presently, she rose, went to a mirror that was let into the wall, and looked at herself critically for some seconds. Should you think it be possible for anybody to fall so hopelessly in love with my appearance that, when love was found to be out of the question, friendship would also be impossible? She demanded in a tone of contempt for herself, turning half round from the mirror to look at Mr. Kilroy as she spoke. Mr. Kilroy glanced at her over his pince-nez, that same appearance which she disliked to be valued for was a never-failing source of pleasure to him, but he took good care to conceal the fact. On this occasion, however, he fell into the natural mistake of supposing that she was coquettishly trying to extricate a compliment from him for once, an amusing feminine device to which she seldom condescended. Well, I should think it extremely probable, he replied, if he were not already in love with another woman. <sighs> or an idea? Angelica suggested with a yawn, and Mr. Kilroy, perceiving that he had somehow missed the point, took up his paper and finished the paragraph he had been reading. Then he said, looking up at her again with admiring eyes, I do not think I quite like that red frock of yours. It seems to me that it is making you look alarmingly pale. Angelica returned to the mirror and once more looked at herself deliberately. Perhaps it does, she answered. But at any rate, you shall not see it again. And having spoken, she sauntered out onto the terrace with a listener's step. And from thence, she wandered off into the gardens where the scent of roses set her thinking, thinking, thinking. She sought to change the direction of her thoughts, but vainly. They would go on in spite of her, and they were always busy with the same subject, always working at the one idea. Israfil, Israfil. There was nobody like him, 
and how badly she had treated him and how good he had always been to her and how could she go on day after day like this with no hope of ever seeing him again in the old delightful intimate way and oh if she had not done this and oh if she had not done that it might all have been so different if only she had been different but now how could it come right a hopeless 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 case she had lost his respect forever and not to be respected a woman and not respected she went down to the lodge gate where they had parted and remembered the chill misery of the moment the grey morning light the pelting rain ah oh, with a sudden pang she only thought of it now how wet he must have been he had lent her his one umbrella and she had kept it she had it still she had allowed him to walk back in the rain without trap or protection of any kind and now she came to think of it he had never changed his things after he had rescued her he never did think of himself the most selfless man alive and she alas had never thought of him never considered his comfort in anything oh remorse if only she could have those times all over again or even one of those times so recklessly misspent he might have lost his life through that wedding or what if he lost his voice singers have notoriously delicate throats but happily nothing so untoward had resulted she was saved the blame of a crowning disaster she knew because she had heard of him going to the cathedral as usual she had taken the trouble to enquire not daring to go herself and she had seen in that day's paper that he would sing the anthem tomorrow so evidently he had not suffered which was some comfort and yet how could he go to the cathedral every day and sing as usual just as if nothing had happened it might be fortitude but considering the circumstances it was far more likely to be indifference and so she continued to torment herself thinking always thinking without any power to stop the next day mr kilroy returned to town alone he had only once again alluded to his wish that she should accompany him and that he did quite casually for she had succeeded in making him content that she should refuse she had convinced him that her exuberant spirits were altogether too much for him he had not had an hour's peace since his arrival though the place would have held a regiment comfortably and what would it be if he shut her up in london in a confined space comparatively speaking and against her will too he left by an early afternoon train and she drove to the station with him to see him off she had enjoyed his visit very much so she said especially the last part of it when she had surpassed herself in ingenious devices to exact attention all that while it lasted really had distracted her but the occupation was not happiness far from it it was a sort of intoxicant rather 
which made her oblivious for the moment of her discontent. At every pause, however, remorse possessed her, remorse for the past. Yet it never occurred to her that her present misdemeanors would be past in time and might also entail consequences, which would in turn come to be causes of regret. But now, when she had succeeded in getting rid of Mr. Kilroy, she was sorry. She stood on the platform watching the train until it was out of sight and then she returned to her carriage with a distinct feeling of loss and pain. What should she do with the rest of the day? She even thought of the next and the next and the next, a long vista of weary days through which she must live alone and to no purpose, a waste of life, a waste of life, a barren waste, a land of sand and thoughts. She wished she was a child again, playing pranks with Diavolo, and she also wished that she had never played pranks, since it was so hard to break herself of the habit. Yet she enjoyed them still, and assured herself that she was only discontented now, because she had absolutely nobody left to torment. Then she tried to imagine what it would be to have Diavolo with her in her present mood, and instantly a squall of conflicting emotions burst in her breast, angry emotions for the most part, because he was no longer with her in either sense of the word, because he was indifferent to all that concerned her in most soul, and was content to live like a lady himself, a trivial idle life, the chief business of which was pleasure, unremunerative pleasure, upon which he would have had her expend her highest faculties in return for what? Admiring glances at herself, and her guns, perhaps? But what should she do with the rest of the day? Her handsome horses were prancing through morning quest as she asked herself the question, and there was a little milliner on the footway looking up with kindly envy at the lady, no older than herself, sitting alone in her splendid carriage with her coachman and footman and everything, nothing to do included, very much included, being, in fact, the principal item. I should be helping her, thought Angelica. She is ill-fed, overworked and weakly, while I am pampered and strong. But there is no rational way for me to do it. If I took her home with me and kept her in luxurious idleness for the rest of her days, as I could very well afford to do, I should only have dragged her down from the dignity of her own honest exertions into this law of self-indulgence in which I find myself and made bad worse. She should have more, and I should have less. But how to arrive at that? Isolated efforts seem to be abortive, yet she stopped the carriage and looked back. The girl had disappeared. She desired the coachman to return and kept him driving up and down some time in the hope of finding her. But the girl was nowhere to be seen, nor could they trace her upon inquiry. Another opportunity lost, thought Angelica. A few pounds in her pocket would have been a few weeks rest for her, a few good meals, a few innocent pleasures. 
she would have been strengthened and refreshed, and I should have been the better too for the recollection of a good deed done. The carriage had pulled up close to the curb, and the footman stood at the door, waiting for orders. What is there to do? thought Angelica. Where shall I go? Not home. The house is empty. Gods, I might as well waste time in that way as any other. She gave the order and passed the next two hours in making calls. Toward the end of the afternoon, she found herself within about a mile of Hamilton House and determined to go and see her mother. There was no real confidence between them, but Lady Adeline's presence was soothing and Angelica thought she would like to go and sit in the same room with her, have tea there and not be worried to talk. These peaceful intentions were frustrated however, by the presence of some visitors who were there when she arrived, and of others who came pouring in afterward in such numbers that it seemed as if the whole neighbourhood meant to call that afternoon. Mr. Hamilton Wells was making tea and talking as usual with extreme precision. Angelica found him seated at a small but solid black ebony table with a massive silver tea service before him. He folded his hands when she entered and, without rising, awaited the erratic kiss which it was her habit to deposit somewhere about his head when she met him. Which ceremony concluded, he gravely poured her out a cup of tea with sugar and milk, but no cream, as he observed, and then he peeped into the teapot and proceeded to fill it up from the great urn which was bubbling and boiling in front of him. He always made tea in his own house. It was a fad of his, and the more people he had to make it, for the better pleased he was. A servant was stationed at his elbow, whose duty it was to place the cups as his master filled them on a silver salver held by another servant, who took them to offer to the visitors who were seated about the room. Angelica knew the ceremony well and slipped away into a corner as soon as she could escape from her father's punctilious inquiries about her own health and her husband's, and there she became wedged by degrees as the room grew gradually crowded. Beside her was a mirror in which she could see all who arrived and all that happened, and involuntarily she became a silent spectator. The medium of the mirror imparting a curious unreality to the scene, which invested it with all the charm of a dream, and, as in a dream, she looked and listened, while clearly, beneath the main current of conversation, and unbroken by the restless change and motion of the people. Her own thoughts flowed on consciously and continuously. Half turned from the rest of the room, she sat at the table, listlessly turning the leaves of an album, at which she glanced when she was not looking into the mirror. She saw the party from Moon enter the room, Aunt Fulda under eternal calm. She looked just the same in the marketplace at Morning Quest, that unlucky night when the tenor met the boy. She was always the same. Is it human to be always the same? Who is that lady? Angelica heard a girl ask of a benevolent-looking, elderly clergyman who was standing with his back to her. Oh, that is Lady Falda Guthrie, 
the youngest daughter of the Duke of Morningquest, he replied. She is a Roman Catholic, a pervert, as we say, but still a very noble woman, religious too, in spite of the errors of Rome, one must confess it. A pity she ever left us, a great pity, but of course, her loss as well as ours. We request to women now, though, but somehow we do not keep them, and I cannot think why. Too cold, Angelica's thoughts ran on. Hollow, shallow, inconsistent, loveless. Catholicism equals a modern refinement of pagan principles with all the old deities on their best behavior thrown in, while Protestantism is an ecclesiastical system founded on fetish. You are a stranger in the neighborhood, the benevolent old clergyman was saying. Only on a visit? Ah, then of course you don't know. They are a remarkable family, somewhat eccentric. Ideella, as they call her, is no relation, only an intimate friend of Lady Claudia Bermond's and of the Marquis of Dawn. The three are usually together. The new order is an outcome of their ideas, a sort of feminine vihimgarisht, so well as I can make out. But no good can come out of that kind of thing, and I trust, as you are a very young lady. Not so young. I'm twenty-two. Indeed, with a smile and a bow. I should not have thought you more than nineteen, but twenty-two is not a great age either, and I do hope you will not be drawn into that set. They are sadly misguided. The ladies scoff at the wisdom of men, look for inconsistencies and laugh at them. Actually, it is very bad taste, you know, and they call it an impertinence for us to presume to legislate exclusively in matters which especially concern their sex and also object the interference of the church as being a distinctly masculine organization in the regulation of their lives. Men, they declare, have always said that they do not understand women, and it is, of course, the height of folly for them to presume to express opinions upon a subject they do not understand. Now, can anything be more absurd? And it is dangerous besides, absolutely dangerous. Yet I hear that they are very good women, the girl ventured, and Angelica thought, that she detected a note of derision levelled at the clerical exponent of these reprehensible ideas beneath the demure remark. Oh, saint-like, he answered cordially, but still to blame, misguided, you know, so I venture to warn you. How can they presume to reject proper direction? Their pride is excessive, but the church will receive them and extend her benefits to them, still, if only, they will humble themselves. Conversation over the room entered upon a crescendo passage at this moment, and Angelica lost the rest of the sentence in the general outburst. A new voice presently claimed her attention. The speaker was a young man addressing another young man, and both had their backs turned to her, and were looking hard at a portrait of herself hung so low on the wall that they had to stoop to look into it. Painted by a good man, were the first words she heard. Rather fine face, who is it? Daughter of the house, don't you know? Old Duke's granddaughter, married old Kilroy of Ilverthorpe. Ah, 
Then that was done some time ago, I expect. Oh dear, no. Only last year. It was exhibited in the last academy. Then she is still young. He peered into the portrait once more with an evident increase of interest. She looks as if she might be larky. Can't make her out on my word, was the response, delivered in a tone of strong disapproval. Married to an elderly chap, not old exactly, but a good twenty years older than herself, who gives her her head to an unlimited extent, yet she says she doesn't care to have a lot of men bothering about. And by job, she acts as if she meant it. It's busy and natural, you know. Well, I must say I like a woman to be a woman, the other rejoined, surveying the portrait from this new point of view. But that's the way with all that Guthrie lot, and you know Don himself a spy. So what can you expect of the rest? The tone implied. Suddenly, Angelica felt her face flush. One of her ungovernable fits of fury was upon her. She sprang to her feet, upsetting her chair with a crash, and turned upon the two young men, who, recognizing her, changed color and countenance, and shrank back apologetically. Her uncle, seeing something wrong, had hurried across the room to her with anxious eyes. Who are those people? she asked him, indicating the two young men. Lord Don, always all courtesy and consideration himself, was shocked by her tone. I think you have met Captain Lester before, he gravely reminded her. Let me introduce. No, for heaven's sake! Angelica broke forth glaring angrily at the offenders. She walked away abruptly with the words on her lips, leaving Lord Tom to settle with the delinquents as he thought fit. Her mother, who was seated at the farther end of the room, talking to a charming-looking old lady Angelica did not know, stretched out a hand to her as she approached and drew her to a seat beside her, and instantly Angelica felt herself in another moral atmosphere. This is my daughter, Mrs. Gilroy of Ilworthorpe, Lady Adeline said to the old lady, then added smiling. There are so many Mrs. Gilroys in this neighbourhood, one is obliged to specify. Angelica, dear, Mrs. Bower. Angelica bowed and then leaned back in her chair so that she might not have to join in the conversation, but she listened in an absent sort of way, feeling soothed the while by the tone of refinement of earnestness and sincerity, in which every word was uttered. No, I'm sure, Lady Adeline was saying, I'm sure no one who can judge would mistake that lineless calm for a device to cover all emotion. I never have done so myself, Mrs. Power rejoined, although I do not know her history, but I should say, judging merely from observation, that the fineness of her countenance, which consists more in the expression of it than in either form or feature, though both are good, is the result of long self-repression, self-denial, and stern discipline, the evidence of a true and beautiful soul, and of a noble mind at rest after some heavy sorrow, or some great temptation which, being resisted, has proved a blessing and a source of strength. Angelica wondered of whom they were speaking, and, following the direction of their eyes, 
met those of Ideella fixed a little sadly, a little wistfully upon herself. Young people, as they grow up, find their own life's history so absorbingly interesting that they think little of what may have happened or may be happening to those whom they have always known as grown-up. And it had never occurred to Angelica that any one of the placid, gentle-mannered women among whom she had always lived, in contrast to them herself as a comet, is to the fixed stars, had ever experienced any extremes of emotion. Now, however, she felt as if her eyes had been suddenly opened and she looked with a new interest at her old familiar friends and wondered, her mind busy for the moment, with what she had just heard. She could not keep it there, however. Involuntarily, it slipped away, back, back, to that first attempt of hers to see the hidden veils of life go round the marketplace, the tenor. Suddenly, she felt as if she must suffocate if she did not get out into the air, and rising quickly, she stole from the room and out of the house and observed. But the babble of voices seemed to pursue her. She stood for a moment on the steps and felt as if the people were all preparing to stream out of the drawing room after her, to surround her and keep up the distracting buzz in her ears by their idle, inconsequent talk. Their horses were prancing about the drive, their empty carriages with cushions, awry and wraps flung untidily down on the seats, or even hanging over the doors and grazing the dusty wheels, gave her a sense of disorder and discomfort from which she felt she must fly. Where to ma'am, please? the footman asked, touching his hat when he had closed the door. Fountain Towers, Angelica answered. She would go and see Dr. Galbraith. When the carriage drew up under the porch at Fountain Towers, she sat some time as if unaware of the fact, but the footman's patient face, as he waited with his hand on the handle of the door, ready to help her to descend, recalled her. She walked into the house, as she had always been accustomed to do, and instantly thoughts of Diavolo came crowding. Why had Diavolo ceased to be all in all to her? She asked herself the question through a mist of tears, which gathered in her eyes but did not fall, and at the same moment her busy mind took note of the singular appearance of a statue on the staircase as she beheld it in blurred outline through her bedimmed vision. She found Dr. Galbraith in the library, sitting at his writing table. The door was half open, so she entered without knocking and walked up to him. He turned at the sound of a step, rose smiling, and held out his hand when he saw who it was. I have been thinking about you this afternoon, he remarked. Sit down. But before she had settled herself, his practiced eyes had detected something wrong. What is it? he asked. Nerves, she answered. Give me something. He went to an inner room and returned presently with a colorless draught in a medicine glass. She took it from him and drank it mechanically, and then he placed a cushion for her and she leaned back in the deep armchair and closed her eyes. 
Dr. Galbraith looked at her for a few seconds seriously and then returned to his writing. Presently, Lord Taunt came in and raised his eyebrows inquiringly when he saw Angelica, who seemed to be asleep. Overwrought, Dr. Galbraith replied to the silent inquiry. There was a fracker at Hamilton House just now, her uncle observed. But how is all this going to end? Well, of course, but you had better leave her to me. Lord Don quietly withdrew. Oh, the blessed rest and peace of this place, Angelica exclaimed shortly afterward. Dr. Galbraith, who had resumed his writing, put down his pen again and turned to her. Talk to me, she said. I've lost my self-respect. I've lost heart. I'm a good-for-nothing worthless person. How am I to get out of this dreadful groove? Live for others. Live openly, he answered slowly, looking up beyond her into futurity, with a kindly light in his deep grey eyes, a something of hope, of confidence, of encouragement expressed in his strong, plain face. Angelica bowed her head. The familiar phrases had a new significance now and diverted the strain of her reflections into another channel. She folded her hands on her lap and sat motionless once more, with her eyes fixed on the ground. Dr. Galbraith was a specialist in mental maladies. He knew exactly how much to say and when to say it. If a text were as much as the patient required or could bear, he never made the mistake of preaching a sermon upon it in addition. And so, for the third time, he took up his pen and returned to his work leaving Angelica engaged in sober thought and happily quiescent. End of Book 5, Chapter 2 Recording by Vijeta Sharma